0: Well, hi. This is uh, Roger Horowitz. Uh, I'm part of the uh, Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. And we're here with another of our Hagley, Hagley History Hangout episodes focused on books uh, this time. Uh, we do these Hagley uh, History Hangouts to highlight some of the important research which is being done at Hagley and some of the books which build off of our interests and the areas in which that can be researched in our library. And today I'm very happy to be with an old friend, Mark Rose, Mark Rose. Mark, welcome to the to the program.
1: Thank you, Roger. I'm honored to be here. I'm happy to be with you and it's always wonderful to talk with you.
0: Okay, thank you. Well, well uh, Mark is, um, uh, we're talking today about Mark's book which he co-authored with uh, Roger Biles called A Good Place to Do Business, The Politics of Downtown Re- Renewal Since 1945. Uh, the book chronicles efforts to reinvigorate the downtowns of major American cities, or since World War II. Uh, Mark Rose is professor of history at Florida Atlantic University. And Roger Biles, who's not with us today, is professor emeritus of history at Illinois State University. Uh, both these men have published armfuls of books, large in the area of urban history, political economy. Um, these are very... Uh, prolific and active authors there. And they've collaborated on this book that we're gonna be talking about uh, today. I should mention too, that Mark uh, Rose has been active in the Business History Conference for many, many years. It's an organization that I serve as treasurer of. Mark was my president once upon a time of the uh, BHC. So he and I go back a ways uh, in our relationship here. Uh, But Mark, let me just ask you to start from the beginning. Uh, How was it that you and Roger Biles decided to write this book? How did this, this book come about?
1: Roger and I had been friends since since maybe the, the early 1990s and and you're going to meetings together and you're having dinner and you're talking we had a lot of a lot of colleagues in in, in common um Raymond Moel, uh, uh, Dom Pasiga, who, who I think you know, and so we were always just talking and talking about, it. and 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 everything. We as we would walk down the street, we would look at buildings and say, "Well, when do you think that was constructed? Who was the designer? What were the investments?" So, and and we were always trying to make s- sense at the same time of who lived where in the city, which group is this, which group is over there? What do you think they did for a living? And so, at some point. Roger Roger was working on his mayor Harold Washington books. It's a wonderful, beautiful book about the first African American pres the first African American mayor of Chicago. And Washington wanted to move city resources out to, to the outlying neighborhoods. And he ran into a lot of opposition from Business people and members of city council. It was just just a, such a neat idea. And it, it, the Washington papers are are available here in at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago. So we we were just talking about it. But then I, I had other interests. This book developed over about twenty five years. So after I did my interstate book and after i did cities of light and heat in the city in the interstate book i have engineers and downtown business people destroying the area around downtown to keep african american people from shopping downtown and to protect downtown property values so that was an idea that that was out there and then when i did cities of light and heat it, it was about a gas and electric companies in several cities And I concluded with with a section in which I have parts of the city that are warm and bright and other portions of the city that are cold and dark. And then I did other things. But in the meantime, in the early 90s, I went to the Chicago Historical Society. I always wanted to be starting something in the middle of something at the end of something. And I I asked the archivist, well, what, what should I work on? and he suggested a couple couple of collections one of them is uh is one of the chapters the rubloff chapters look at the rubloff papers great and so every time i would go back to chicago for a meeting or to see family i would spend a couple of days over over at the chicago history museum so I was finishing a, a book about the regulation and deregulation of banking and Roger and I said, hey, we need to do this next book together. So I brought a lot of other ideas with me about racial capitalism, about bright parts of the city, dark parts of the city, uh, about uh, uh, the, the other idea that that had come to ideas from the, from the early 2000s deindustrialization. I I wanted to know more about that. I had this image of the Chicago in which I grew up as a series of factories that were closed down and railroad cars that were loaded with snow and nobody was, the place of, of abandonment. And, and so I, I was wanted to tie that together. And then just, just growing up in Chicago, you always knew that populations were on the move and that they moved as groups. So it was really Roger's idea to focus on this downtown, outside of downtown area. And then we built all of those other themes about Deindustrialization, population movement, state constructedness, racial capitalism. They all move uh, through each chapter uh, across our 50 or so years.
0: Fascinating. I mean, in a way, you're you're describing how historians write their books, which is you get threads from previous scholars, as scholarship that you own do, and then you figure out how to rewrap it. And how you get yes. to get different questions there um can you say if there was a central question you wanted to answer or central questions that you hope the book would, would answer and address that we that if we read it we would take away with some ideas from that
1: the the question with with which i started was how was it that these five cities the cities that President Roosevelt had called the arsenals of democracy. World War II ends. These are the great industrial cities, automobiles, tanks, railroads, meatpacking. And 10 or 15 years later, they are the cities of deindustrialization, intense racial conflict, vast outmigration. And so what the book is about was efforts of, the efforts of these downtown business people to retain that former profitability, glory, what what they began to call major league cities, which included baseball clubs, convention centers, airports, uh, business, white business people like themselves coming downtown. So the their goal, I, I, I like to think, was that. They that people like them would retain apartments downtown. They would would not move to the suburbs, that their wives would go shopping in nice department stores, go out for lunches. And then the couple would meet at about seven or eight o'clock at night to go to a museum gallery opening. So this was what the city was going to look like as envisioned by these downtown people for about, 10 or 15 years after the Second World War, except it just fundamentally did not work out that way. So for for example, one one of my arguments in in the Interstate book was that it was one of the fundamental miscalculations of the post World War II period. It basically destroyed huge portions of downtown, uh, destroyed areas coming into downtown. But the suburban, it just facilitated the suburbanization that they were seeking to to stop. It just made it easier for um, moderately affluent, mostly white people to move away and the downtown retailing did not return. In cities like Chicago, uh, it's beautiful. There's a a successful uh, banking community, a successful investment community, and tremendous amount of money was spent to make downtown Chicago into a lovely place to visit, a wonderful place, good place to do business. But only a mile or two from downtown, uh, the, the some of those areas lead the nation in in murders. So not a success. That that that's, I think our key point, and and it's fundamentally about race.
0: Well, immediately let's let's talk about that because it's it's right there. Uh, you mentioned it both in your opening comments here and about here. Uh, you say it's fundamentally about race. Well, how is this? process you're describing, uh, this effort to revive the downtowns, this misguided effort is really, I think, what you're saying. How is it all about race?
1: Every downtown business person, especially if they were involved in real estate like Rubloff and, and some of the others, they knew who lived in every building they owned. They knew who lived resided in every building that their friends owned. They knew the racial makeup of every building. Race was a constituent element of the real estate businesses in which they were involved. And so these vast renewal programs were fundamentally about the destruction of African-American neighborhoods. So even in in, in the later period, when, when we're talking about hospitals What we're really talking about there were hospitals as gigantic urban renewal projects. So they in in these vast medical districts, say in Chicago or St. Louis, the the, the hospital authorities were uh, able to demolish buildings and Construct laboratories or new hospital facilities, but it was always the African American neighbors, or almost always the African American neighborhoods, that were to be demolished. Uh, while other, uh, I, I've, to, uh, let's go farther with it rather than me going, going, going on and on.
0: Right. Well, no, I think this is this is this is very very you know important part of your, your story there. I mean, you mentioned you know earlier, and of course, you, your your book about the interstates. What is that book called, by the way? The book about the interstates.
1: It's called Interstate Express Highway Politics.
0: Okay, so check that out, uh, Mark's other work there, and also to be clear, the, the focus of this book that Mark has about the downtown, it looks at St. Louis, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland. So you're you're aware. I mean, it looks at Pittsburgh too. We'll get to that in a minute there. Um, but what you're what you're doing is that you're you're, you're drawing an analogy or maybe a direct connection between what happens in the 40s and the 50s for the interstates, which we sort of know about that interstates come to the downtown of cities, wipes out a lot of African-American and white ethnic neighborhoods in the hope of revival. And it leaves these scars in these cities that you know cities are still trying to figure out how to deal with the way the highways divide up the cities. You're drawing a connection between that and something which happens a couple of decades later, the development of commercial activities such as hospitals. You also talk about sports teams and convention centers in your book there. Um, can you make that clear? I mean, how is that? how, how are these things connected? The highways of the 50s, 60s, mm. with this process of the 70s and the 80s where you try to get these large enterprises downtown mm-hmm. as a way for economic development?
1: A, a number of the ideas were around convention centers, airports, sports teams. They're all around in the 40s and 50s. They're, they're around in the 20s and 30s. But earlier, the, the first big move was was the interstate. But then over across the decades, by say the, the late 50s, early 1960s in St. Louis, the emphasis was on a, a, a new home for the St. Louis Cardinals. Then in the 1970s, it's a new home, a a new stadium for the St. Louis Blues, the the, the hockey team. And and in other cities, the emphasis was on convention centers. We get this huge convention center, people will fly in for three days, spend a lot of money, go out for dinner, go to a play, property values will, will boom downtown sales will rise again. and by by the 90s uh, the the emphasis has shifted to yet another idea, hospitals and also gambling so bring in casinos and that will be the casinos and um and the the gambling and the hospitals will finally at last, begin the process of rescuing downtown property values.
0: Now, one of the things you show is how these, in most cases, not all but most cases, this, these huge projects don't do what they are intended to do. Yet the appeal remains that you, you this is, you know, you describe the cyclical character of it, it keeps on happening there. Why is it? Why do we have the resort to these big projects, these, these big things that are supposed to save things? And then when in fact there's so much evidence, especially for convention centers, there's so much evidence mm-hmm. that these that these projects don't actually do uh, what they, uh, what they meant to do. I mean just just here, for example, in Wilmington, the redevelopment of the waterfront area began with the construction of a convention center, which was a complete flop. And now mm-hmm. um, and, and, and now it, it's still there, but it's, it's, it's really not it has not worked. Uh, it's now a hotel so but what is the appeal for these for these projects for these urban areas so many cities doing these things and many small cities that you don't go into also trying these kinds of one big project strategies for renewal
1: suburbs uh, all around south florida have they have these hotels small convention centers Uh, Orlando is the convention center of uh, one of the convention centers of the United States, along with Las Vegas. It may be, Roger, that it's one of those approved ideas in the world of business and politics. And then there are people who are in the convention business who fly around the country, consultants, explaining to downtown business people and political leaders that. You just need to enlarge your convention center, put in a hotel, and the business that's going across the state to St. Louis, you can recapture that here in Chicago or down in Dallas. So, again, the the fundamental idea is these people are always going to be meeting. And if you have the right facilities, they they will come to them. You, You will build a good place to do business.
0: Now, um, this focus on the downtown again. This is where the downtown again comes back in. Is that you want the downtown to be this sort of incubator, this economic growth, um, and the the rationale for that is that is that it'll it'll all boats will rise if you have this kind of economic development. Uh, but you show that's not the case. There are some exceptional cases where these districts do well, but even those exceptional cases, you mentioned Chicago, it doesn't help the neighborhoods, especially African-American neighborhoods. Why is that? Why doesn't this have this kind of economic ripple effect, which its mm. proponents are saying mm. will happen?
1: You know, Roger, I'm not certain why it doesn't permeate out the way it does. These places don't really create as many jobs as, as, as are advertised. Uh, the jobs are mostly part-time in nature. So you bring in a few people to work at the convention center, a few thousand people work at the ballpark for a couple of hours, but they don't create the kinds of jobs that you can support a family with your two or three kids and pay pay your rent. They're part-time work. So they, they promise thousands of jobs, but those are one-time things, and then even those thousands of jobs don't materialize. So, for example, the Philadelphia Convent- Convention Center, and may- maybe if these places are busy, 200, 200, 250 days a year would be phenomenal. But most of the other days, they're, they're quiet. And similarly, a ballpark, it's only busy 81 days a year. And the rest of the days, they just take up space and it's a big parking lot. And there are no jobs there except for the twenty or thirty or fifty people who run the baseball team.
0: Right. So that also does not produce the kind of ripple effects, kind of economic like ripple effects. Right. So you have that's right because businesses can't survive the smaller businesses, the bars, the restaurants, clothing stores on that relatively small amount of clientage.
1: Perfect. Now, Perfect. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. No. So the other big idea of, of Say the 1990s into the 2000s was that these uh, hospitals—Barnes Jewish, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Rush in Chicago, which is a gigantic place—that they would then take their research in biology, and it would be made into used by a joint nearby corporations, and they would build. Biotech. The, the cities would emerge as biotech centers. Well, it didn't work out that way in in most cities. St. Louis is not a biotech center. Even Chicago is not a not a biotech center. I'm not. I'm less clear about about Philadelphia, and so they they never they lacked the infrastructure for biotechnology. They didn't have the right kinds of people who were educated in, in appropriate fields. Uh, the, the investment community was actually much more reluctant about biotech than than any anybody thought. Money didn't flow forward to 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 create these things. So at 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 the Illinois Medical Center at Rush, after about 20 years, they had about 25 or 30 companies who were actually in their biotech park. And what they ended up doing was renting space to places like Costco, or they turned the old Cook County Hospital that became a Hyatt Hotel. So they ended up as urban renewal operations, creating da- a few downtown jobs. Uh, in, in One of them, they were gonna run a, heli- a, helio- a helicopter port for business people to fly in downtown have a wonderful day that that kind of stuff but right. uh, biotechnology was already well established in a number of cities in silicon valley and elsewhere uh around the boston area uh people went fr- from our cities went out there visited looked at it talked with it but it was very difficult to translate that into Solid investments. Then in St. Louis, the um, the Missouri Legislature uh, uh, vetoed all uh, cell. I'm losing the word. Oh, emb- emb- embryo, uh, embryonic stuff. research. So the the business ended there, and they ended up opening sporting goods stores. That that kind of stuff. So all uh, the big plans just could not be be made to work. And they were dependent upon some degree of state funding just just to get the thing started. I mean, the other interesting thing about about Barnes was was the largest of the hospitals in the area. People fly in from around the world to go to Barnes. It's it's a very successful research hospital. And and even Dr. Danforth, who was very well known and he knew what to do, and he developed the neighborhood around there, made the Central West End into an exciting place, and more patients were supposed to flow from the suburbs into downtown for major medical activities. Not even Danforth could turn their biotech center into a successful business operation.
0: So another false hope if you will another
1: you will. another false hope yes
0: in this in this area uh now uh while you're talking about these 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 hopes these these big projects what i'm thinking about here is how they don't think about the resources that are already there in the places that are taking place such as these neighborhoods and places like that um and this in a way goes back to this issue of race i mean to, to what extent is this focus on essentially let's face it, upper middle class consumers we're talking about, not only white ones, but thinking about class. Um, is this a bias? Is this a blindness? Um, is this deliberate, not engaging with the world that's actually in those cities uh, as there is, where there are you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who live there who are not going to be going to the hospitals they might go to a baseball game or two. Um, they might drive through there, but these seem, don't seem to be projects that do things with the populations in the cities where, where they are.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that comes across in your, in, your, in your book, too, that the politics of, this, of the downtown are very much about getting a different group of people to be in the downtown areas and those folks who already are. Uh, and it just you know the way you, your examples you go over about this in a number of different places, it's repeated and the, and the and the and the blinders on on that are particularly striking. Is that mm. race? Is that class? Is that I don't know what it is.
1: It's all of those. But here's the other dimension to it: the African American mayors who of say Detroit in the 1970s and then then later Cleveland, they pursue the same downtown, upper income, white oriented projects as their lawyer predecessors had done from the business community. And so I don't know, there's a kind of a profiling there that they've accepted some assumptions about uh, their African-American neighbors, what what can be done here, levels of education. They also lack the resources and the time to turn high school graduates, African-Americans, into MA holding biotechnology specialists. And so they've got their two or three years in office. They, They have to start to deliver something. And the resources to do that, the cities are very dependent on lo- local people, bond issues, credit ratings. So the, the African American mayors are as bound by the rules and by the practices as their European American mayors have been.
0: Let's elaborate on those on those constraints here. Um, you mentioned bonds and finance. Um, how is that? sort of, if you will, behind the curtain, a power in this kind of focus on downtown renewal that that you've been describing. Mm. I'm thinking bonds. I'm thinking taxation districts. I'm thinking all Mm. the different kinds of financial mechanisms that are are deployed to, uh, to, if you will, develop, redevelop these cities.
1: Mm. I'm not sure that there's a curtain of power as much as We don't understand ordinary people, don't understand finance. But the cities are in debt in order to maintain the downtown, let alone develop the outlying areas. They have to borrow. Sometimes they have to borrow just to pay their police departments, fire departments, schools, maintain the schools, pay the teachers. But the bond rating agencies are fundamentally determinative of the credit rating. The interest rates that will be paid, and in order for a bond to be purchased by large mutual funds, it has to have a AAA rating. So, same as with bank uh, kinds of activities, and, and so they ha- they work in the same set of within the same set of rules as their predecessors. So. That's part of it. The, the, the bond, the bond business, the taxation, the tax increment financing districts, which then all of the funds that are the the, the enhanced tax collections in those areas remain within those areas. It diminishes tax collections for the city the city as a whole. So Roger had Roger Horowitz, my co-author, had published a couple of- Roger,
0: Roger, Roger Biles, I'm
1: Roger Horowitz. I, I'm sorry, Roger Biles. My, you, you would be a great co-author too, Roger Horowitz. Uh, he had published some articles and then there's Destin Jenkins, wonderful book, which came out about a year or so, just as we were finishing yeah. uh, the, the Jenkins book arrived. And it allowed, it encouraged us to be much more precise about the racial dimensions of those bond issues but but bonds had been around uh city projects for a long, long time, so in St Louis, for example, as far back as the nineteen fifties they had to go to the voters to get approval. You needed two thirds it's a very high bar, and the union leaders, all white, would encourage their members to vote in favor of these bonds because they that would then create construction jobs for their white union members so you're asking African Americans to vote in favor of a bond issue from which that might destroy portions of their neighborhood and in which they could not secure jobs but then 50 years later after Coleman Young and others you still have fundamentally the same, situation, except portions of Detroit or Cleveland are that much more deteriorated. And so, again, mayors, black or white, turn to ethnic festivals, flower festivals, gambling, more sports teams, and so forth.
0: I mean, it sounds that, in a way, it's the opportunity to borrow money to build large things, which encourages that kind of practice. So you can't borrow a a bond issue to rebuild a large square section of a city because it's not revenue generating. So you have to have a revenue generating project as the reliance on bonds steers the search for money to rebuild the city away from the neighborhood redevelopment.
1: Great point, exactly.
0: So The nature of what is
1: bondable helps to direct the borrowing and what, what gets rebuilt. You can borrow, you can bond out a new baseball park, or you can get the state of Illinois to build a new park for the Chicago White Sox, but the state of Illinois is not going to fund a uh, Improved housing, rehab housing for ten thousand families uh, on the south side of Chicago. It's not not revenue bond kind of thing.
0: Now, uh, one of the interesting points, if, if obscure but important, was the tax incremental financing districts, the TIF districts, and especially in Chicago, um, that how important this was and. I'd like you to explain it, explain the problem with these TIF districts, because it's not obvious, yet it seems incredibly important in this issue of finance, why these projects that are supposedly generating tax revenue don't actually generate revenue for the city as a whole.
1: So let let me give you my limited understanding of the TIF district. So there's a, a square block in Chicago, and Some of the large corporations are saying, well, we're going to move out. This is kind of run down. It's deteriorated. Don't worry about it. What we will do is we will create a tax increment financing area on that square block, And then we will, some of that revenue and your revenue you will use to Beautify, fix up the front of the building. And then, as property values increase, the taxes there will be used only on that block or two. So, the taxes are not available for the schools or even for the buildings on the block next door. The other device city officials used was tax abatements. So, you're not happy here you don't have to pay taxes for 5 years or 10 years. Or in St. Louis, uh the downtown business people prevailed upon city government to declare the downtown blighted. So once you had a blighted designation, you didn't have to pay any taxes. Well, the police still had to be paid, the firefighters, the teachers, but now you've removed those taxes you've shifted the burden outward to the less wealthy portions of the city but this was all in the in the interest of persuading the remaining downtown business people please remain here
0: right so you end up if you will losing resources rather than increasing resources for for that for that area i thought i mean finance is one of these things hard to understand but it seems so Central to the kind of dynamics uh, that that you're describing. Um, well, let's bring in one more the one more big player into this, and that's the federal government, which we haven't talked about at all. And of course, you know, we live in a federal system. There, federal money is so important, and federal policies are so important. Um, what's the federal government's responsibility for this this, this sort of situation? Where, where these cities are, are starving for money, employing these kind of financial devices, such that no matter who the mayor is, they have to do that. What's the federal government's responsibility in, in, in that sort of a trap that these cities find uh, mm-hmm. themselves?
1: Well, Roger Biles and I would like to tell you that federal officials have substantial responsibility for every city. But federal officials, at least since the early 1970s, at least since the time of Richard Nixon, have determined that they do not have that responsibility. They had revenue sharing early on. So you had block grants of money, but those were dispersed very widely, including to in, including to the booming new cities of the Southwest and to prosperous suburbs. Everybody could could get a share of that. And then by the 1980s, the the large federal projects, urban development action grants, for example, the, those disappeared. And so Roger Biles and I highlighted, the few mayors, uh, such as Coleman Young, who were able to get loans to build uh, the, the new hockey arena, that sort of thing. But they they were the big exceptions here. Basically, federal of- officials deleted cities from from their call lists. Now there are other federal programs. There there's. What are called Section Eight housing? Uh, it's a voucher system, kind of like public schools have vouchers, and you. But landlords, I understand, don't don't really want Section Eight renters, and they don't want Section Eight vouchers. They want cash-paying customers, and so the Section Eight vouchers are deeply, also deeply racialized.
0: This part of the story is the withdrawal of the federal government from these cities, which of course means they don't have access to the deep pockets. That's right. Of the state, you know, you know, for you know, for these areas there. Um,
1: which in turn if i if i could interrupt which in turn makes mayors and downtown business people even more dependent on the bond rating agencies and on trying to lure your corporation into my city or doing whatever i need to do as mayor to keep my baseball and football team in town even if it means spending millions of dollars to refurbish their stadium.
0: I mean, I mean, is this a a trap that they can't get out of? Are there any strategies that uh, could be employed that do more for the neighborhoods? This, I mean, this is your big point: is that in a way, this downtown redevelopment, this lure is so is so attractive, um, overdetermined, you might say, that it results in in a sucking of resources away from the area. So again, this is your story, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's not just that sometimes these downtown redevelopment are consistently, they don't, they don't work, is that the efforts to make them work, augment, if you will, inequality, because resources are pulled out of those other areas.
1: Perfectly said, thank you, That that's it. It's not just that they fail to work, it's they're actually Expensive, they're costly for these outlying areas. And so, again, Roger Biles first really crystallized this for me. Mayor Harold Washington, for example, wanted to shift resources to some of the outlying areas, uh, but within Chicago. The steel industry was in the business of leaving Chicago just as Harold Washington was mayor. And in addition, there were a number of remaining small manufacturers still in Chicago. And maybe it would have been the case that if the city had invested in those small manufacturers all around the city, who at that point employed principally African-American or local European, uh, uh, what we call white ethnic. Those jobs might actually have remained in the city. But it's not just that the firms moved out. They also just went bankrupt. Steel leaves, that that disappears. Uh, Meatpacking had left a long time before. Uh, The chemical industry had left. Railroading and and so forth. Now, I, I don't know, could the city of Chicago have invested in the the Pennsylvania Railroad probably too heavy a lift, probably what what beyond any one city could do, but fundamentally I, I think you've you've turned exactly the the correct kept conceptual corner there. It's not just that there's very little investment in the outlying areas; it's the outlying areas also end up paying for part of the part of the cost for downtown's beautification and resuscitation. But in the end, it it doesn't even do that. So there are a few nice buildings, there are a few uh, areas in Cleveland or Detroit that are fun to visit, go out for dinner, have a great time. But two or three or four blocks away, it's the same phenomena I described in my cities of light and heat, areas of darkness and cold.
0: (laughs) Detroit, yeah, I've been many times in Detroit and and it's a lot lot to renew there. Um, Well, do you have any closing thoughts about this? I mean, do you have any suggestions on on, say, those who live in cities who see these politics coming up? uh, You know, what kind of angles are there to generate a sort of more uh, fairer, if you will, share of city urban priorities?
1: When I was much younger, I, I, I might have I might have given you a couple of ideas about how we can fundamentally fundamentally change politics. But l- let me give you a couple of examples from from the book that that I find dis- discouraging. So in downtown Chicago, people like Arthur Rubloff actually had very little success in implementing their their big projects. They were always at loggerheads with, with the other downtown people. But that same group of people had no problem assembling gigantic projects that just rolled over African-American portions of Chicago. But then, even in a later period, uh, Roger Biles and I have, have a chapter on a member of city council in Detroit, um mel Ravitz and and a woman in downtown chicago they 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 do all the right things they're organized they know how to go to city hall they know how to confront the mayor but a- as we argue these those are all part-time efforts they're they're not about the business of changing city policy whereas city officials renewal agencies they have attorneys who work on this full time. They're they're in the business of turning aside these kinds of people. And so, in in a later period, as we as we come into the two thousands, that there just seems so few likely opportunities for. People out in the neighborhoods to change their lives in fundamental ways, and so they're in the same position as their current mayors or former mayors and other business people of hoping that there is some success downtown, and then maybe maybe some portion of it uh, comes out in in their direction. So far, that hasn't taken taken place, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not optimistic, and and if they were to come to me and say, "Mark, what 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 should we do here?" i I, I guess my answer would be hope for the best.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, in, in a way, what you're saying, what you're concluding with, is that the problems are more than these cities can tackle by themselves. That said again, yeah, I mean, the mayor, the mayor is, however, well intentioned, is caught by forces of capital. And the absence of resources to, to do these things. And, and this seems to me, again, this in, in retrospect, that the, the absence of federal resources or some sort of shifting of the playing field seems determinative here. You know, that you don't have another choice if you want to redevelop areas. There. You're sort of forced mm-hmm. to go down this road, even if you have concerns about it yourself, because otherwise there's no money to be mm-hmm. obtained for these
1: things. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be overly determinative about federal resources. We don't know how that would have been spent. And, and the interstate was a central city disaster. And so resources and resources spent in a way that would, in the future, foster growth for people in outlying areas, take a lot of wise people able to collaborate so, so, you know, I, I, I did some articles on the Intermodal Surface Transportation Act. It's, it's an obscure 1991 uh, piece of legislation. And the idea was that rather than interstate projects come plowing through cities, that governments, local governments would get together in these councils of government and they would determine uh, the best projects for their area highways, shipping, railroads, airports. But w- what I found was lots and lots of arguing, fighting, inability to agree. Oh, uh, it, it, Will the port be on my side of the river? Will it be on your side of the river? I want an airport. Not easy to put these. What you have in part is a uh, at the same time that we're missing federal funds, we also have an excess of decentralization. Hmm.
0: Right. Where you, where you fight over what what's there because you're looking at it strictly inside your particular jurisdiction. Exactly. Right. So you have a challenge of, of federalism, if you will. in that case. Right. Well, Mark, I think we've been going for about uh, 40 minutes. I think that's a um, long time. Um, do you have any last thoughts you want to share with someone interested in your book? and interested in the arguments you and Roger Biles make.
1: I would be pleased to correspond with anybody interested in the book. Roger Biles would be pleased to do so. I would look forward to meeting people uh, at at the various conventions like the Business History Conference. And I very much enjoyed having the opportunity to talk with with you, Roger, about the book.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, Good Place to Do Business, The Politics of Downtown Renewable. It's available in paper. University of Pennsylvania Press. uh, Take a look. And uh, Mark, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Roger. Always good to talk. Thank you.
0: Take care.